So there's this point where some really bright students, because they don't have a lot of strategies and skills because they haven't needed them because they're very bright, they hit a wall where there's enough rigor and enough challenge and you know more responsibilities as they get older. And they don't have the skills and strategies to support this kind of new challenge that they're having to face. And they completely fall apart. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Janine Janot, an academic coach and the author of the book, The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart, Falling Apart, and How to Turn It Around. Janine has over 25 years of experience working with children, teens, and young adults in both public and private school settings. She began teaching college psychology courses in 2010, and in 2014, she founded The Balanced Student which helps students increase academic productivity while emphasizing physical and mental wellness. I wanted to bring Janine onto the show after a friend shared some useful executive function tools from her book and further explore this idea of the disintegrating student, which Janine describes as bright, successful students who suddenly hit a wall with falling grades, scattered work, and emotional upheaval. So in this episode, we explore that especially through the lens of middle school and high school students. Together, we dig into the importance of mindset for teens, discover what the rigor tipping point looks like, and talk about whether or not procrastination is a viable strategy. Janine also shares the things we as parents and caregivers may do with the best of intentions that might be having the opposite effect on our kiddos as well as strategies that can help students who are disintegrating. Lastly, I want to give a quick shout out to Erin Dragoshan, a new supporter of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining my Patreon campaign and helping me cover the costs of producing this show. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to join Erin in supporting it, you can sign up with Patreon to make a small monthly contribution. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash tiltparenting. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Janine Janot. Hey, Janine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to discussing your book, which I just read yesterday and really enjoyed it, got a lot out of it, have already implemented some strategies. Um, but it's I feel like it's a great conversation for this show for my listeners. But before we get into talking about the disintegrating student, can you just take a few minutes? I've already read your formal bio, but just tell us a little bit about who you are in your own words. So I my background is in school psychology and child developmental psychology. And I have three kids, um, my youngest of which is 18 and just went off to college. And why I ended up writing a book is because at some point, there was about 10 years ago, my youngest was in elementary school. Uh, my middle kid was in middle school. My oldest was in high school. And I started teaching college. And I had this incredible bird's eye view of education and what was happening with our children. And it wasn't, um, I I was very shaken by what I saw and about the anxiety and the mental health issues coming out of it. So um, I ended up working with my college students and figuring out they really 
they were just overwhelmed. They didn't have a lot of skills. And I worked on trying to help them, you know, figure out this new training. You know, they're independent now and they needed some help. So I started coaching. So I do academic and uh, student and parent coaching through the balanced student. And when I started doing that coaching, I started seeing these students I wasn't expecting to see. It was these high achieving, really bright kids and a lot of kids with um, executive functioning issues alongside that. And they were just hitting a wall and falling apart. And so that's sort of how I ended up writing the book. And so my, my passion is just trying to figure out how we help these kids in today's high pressure, high stakes achievement culture, you know, and really meeting their needs. Yeah, it was such a, even the term, the disintegrating student, and I want you to define that a little more for us, but that just jumped out at me because it's such a powerful visual, uh, this idea of disintegrating. And it, it, you really seem to have captured a different phenomenon than I, you know, I read a ton of parenting books and a ton of articles and talk to a lot of people. And this was something different that I hadn't really thought about in, in this way. So the, the book, just for listeners, it's called The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart, Falling Apart, and How to Turn It Around. Could you give us a, a deeper definition of what a disintegrating student is? What do you mean by that? Absolutely. It, it's a, a term I coined because what I was seeing were these students who, again, had been very successful academically for a very long period of time. And then all of a sudden they fall apart. So these are the kids who typically went through elementary school, maybe even middle school, sometimes even high school, just kind of showing up, getting their work done in class or in study hall or on the bus. And not really having to study and they could still show up for tests, get good grades, and it was all great. And then they hit this wall and I call it a rigor tipping point. So there's this point where some really bright students, because they don't have a lot of strategies and skills because they haven't needed them because they're very bright, they hit a wall where there's enough rigor and enough challenge and you know more responsibilities as they get older. And they don't have the skills and strategies to support this kind of new challenge that they're having to face. And they completely fall apart. And it usually comes around to, you know, their grades will start to falter. So they, they become kind of inconsistent. So if they're an A student, all of a sudden they're starting to get some Bs, maybe some Cs. And the parent says, well, what's going on? What's happening here? And the kid says, I don't know. And they're 100% not lying. They really don't know what's happening. And so what the book is kind of all about is trying to explain what this phenomenon is, what is happening to these students and what role the achievement culture plays, what role parents are playing in this and what role the students themselves are playing in this. Yeah. And I love that term. Also, rigor tipping point. Again, just such a powerful, gettable concept. And I'm wondering, is there a time when these typically happen? It's probably unique for every student, but is, do they tend to happen around a certain time? In, in my experience, I was seeing a lot of eighth graders reaching that rigor tipping point, a lot of 10th graders. And that first semester of college was also a time of struggle for a lot of students. Interestingly, uh, I'm in the Atlanta area, and around here, we've been offering high school courses uh, in middle school the last few years. And so once that started happening, ninth grade became this huge rigor tipping point. 
I started seeing a ton of ninth graders and the they were all taking 10th and 11th grade classes. And that told me they were experiencing that rigor too soon. They weren't prepared for that. Super interesting. I'm wondering if you could talk about the role of mindset a little bit and disintegrating students. And you talk about Carol Dweck's work many years ago, we did an episode on mindset. But even before you mentioned Carol Dweck, as I'm reading this, I'm like, yeah, these are kids who haven't had to work that hard. So can you talk a little bit more about gifted kids, twice exceptional kids, and how the mindset plays a role in all of this? The mindset, the mindset is key. So I actually identified like seven areas that these students have skill deficits or counterproductive behaviors. So there's time management, organization, sleep screens, stress, but the the biggest one is mindset. And so why it's so important is these kids are almost always on, you know, the mindset's a continuum. So we've got growth on one end and fixed on the other, but they are always on that fixed mindset side of things. So they're coming to me having heard their whole lives how smart they are, that well-intentioned, you're so smart, you're so gifted, you're so, you know, you're an amazing athlete, all these kinds of things. And when when it, when they're hearing smart, you, you're so smart, you're so smart, they internalize that. And then when they start getting that feedback, and this again hits that rigor tipping point, when they're starting to get feedback that maybe you're not so smart, that really kind of destroys them inside. Their self-esteem takes a huge hit and they they because they have that fixed mindset, they're going to start avoiding challenges because they don't want that negative feedback. They aren't going to ask for help because smart kids figure it out and don't need to ask for help. They're not going to really put a lot of effort into it and risk making mistakes because that's the worst. And in their head, when they've seen other students working really hard and trying and putting in effort and asking for help, those aren't the smart kids. So again, that feels very threatening to them. So how I always have to start with a student is where is your mindset and how are we going to bring you over more into that growth mindset space where you understand that making mistakes is actually how you learn and accepting challenges actually how you learn and you're going to be more successful there. And interestingly, the way I have been successful in doing that is these kids usually have some place where they do have a growth mindset. So it might be an extracurricular. So it might be lacrosse or band or the debate team, but someplace they're really passionate. They enjoy getting the feedback and the coaching. They are willing to put in the effort. They're willing to make mistakes and they get the connection between how they're thinking about it and the outcome. And when I, when I talk to them about that space and then say, so is that how you're dealing with school or thinking about school? They're like, no, not at all. So that helps them understand it's possible to pull themselves a little bit more into that growth area out of their fixed mindset around school. That is super interesting because as you're talking, I have a a recently turned 17-year-old, pretty fixed mindset. And also I can see certain areas around passion, whether it's a coding project or otherwise, where total growth mindset. So I hadn't thought of I mean, I've noticed it, but I hadn't realized how powerful that can be in helping pivot in those other areas. I think it's really important to kind of ask ourselves the question, why is that? Why are so many kids finding a fixed mindset in the academic space? 
And again, I have to go back to the high pressure, high stakes achievement culture they've been experiencing their whole lives where what they've taken away is I need to check the box is very data driven. I need to get the grade, turn in the assignment, get the award, get the SAT, ACT score, apply to this college, get accepted to this college. It's all about checking the box and not about learning and growth. And that's what puts them in this space. Yeah. And also, so many of these kids, gifted kids, 2E kids, profoundly gifted kids, their intellect is a huge piece of their identity. And so at an age where they are trying to really sort out their identity and where do I fit in? And then to have that piece challenged, I can imagine is really paralyzing. It's very paralyzing. And that's what ends up happening. So they just kind of stop in their tracks and it does look like paralysis. And the parents, so at this point it gets tricky because there's misunderstandings and miscommunications that are happening between the parent and the kid. Because the parent's asking what's going on. The kid says, I don't know. They really mean it. And so the parent has a story in their head that, okay, my kid doesn't care anymore. They're lazy. They're not motivated. And they offer because we, we love our kids and we want to help. So we offer tutoring. We offer you know, resources. What can we do to help? And the child doesn't take advantage of that. So we interpret that as this is in their control. They're deciding not to try. And in the kid's head is a whole different story. The the thing I hear most from kids is my parents care more about my grades than they do me, which is never true. But when you consider how often we talk to our kids about what did you turn that thing in? what you get on that test? What did so-and-so get on that test? Are, are you going to, you know, that's a lot of what we say to them. And so they're just kind of connecting the dots and saying, clearly, this is important to you, maybe more important than I am. So that's one of the things that kids are thinking. They're also thinking that they're no longer smart, which, as we mentioned, kind of scares them a lot. They think it's only happening to them because they're not talking about it to their peers. So they're very surprised when they talk to me to find out, oh, yeah, you are so not alone. This is happening to a lot of students. And they really do worry about disappointing their parents, too. That's a huge concern. And again, because the communication's not awesome when this starts to happen, That's not something parents really understand. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. 
Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. You wrote in the book that some of these disintegrating students may also have learning disabilities. That is certainly going to be the case for a lot of listeners here, especially parents of twice exceptional kids. And you say they're eventually further disadvantaged by their non-typical thinking and learning styles. So can you say a little more about that? Yeah, and it's it's really unfortunate because I feel like our twice exceptional kids are already swimming upstream when it comes to school. And you throw in, you know, and if, if they actually are gifted and they're able to compensate and get by up to that point where they hit that rigor tipping point, it's just one more thing to overcome. And, and oftentimes this is happening after eight years in the education system, 10 years, and they're just done. And I hear that so often from them that I just want it to be over. I just want to graduate. And then they've got the pressure of, well, I've got to go on to the next stage, which potentially is college. So it's a lot. And it, what I see in those students is their self-esteem is really, really harmed by this whole process. And there's so much they have to offer. You know, and I try to really reassure them and help them understand their brains and help them see that school is not the ideal place for them to show their awesomeness. It's, it's really not, <laughs> but there will be a place and they just have to, you know, almost, I say, you kind of have to survive this piece to get to the next place where you can show all your awesomeness off. And I, I really feel like they need to hear that a lot to be reassured. This is, you know, I can do this and I've got something to offer and the education system they're in sometimes just doesn't allow that to happen or makes it very challenging. So true. It is so true. So there were, in reading this book, so many little things that jumped out at me. So I hope I'm not kind of taking you all over the place, but there were just certain things that really struck me. 
you talk about something called the spotlight effect, which is the sense that teens in particular um, have that attention is being disproportionately directed at them. I thought that was fascinating and also understood why that might have something to do with why some students disintegrate. And I mean, I'm fascinated with teens in general because I'm raising one and I'm in that space right now. But can you talk a little bit more about the spotlight effect? Yeah. So I, and again, I think this is a thing that's really helpful for parents to realize and for students to understand, um, you know, the kind of the intricacies of the adolescent brain. It's a fascinating brain and it's, it's got so much going on, but this little quirk is kind of annoying as a parent because it's the thing where you're, you're out in public and you say something to your child, you whisper it to your teen or whatever. (laughs) They just completely freak out that you're yelling and every you're embarrassing them. And you're thinking, I could not possibly be talking any softer than I am right now. Um, So that's part of how that translates, but when, how it translates in, in school is there's, they feel like there is really this, everybody is judging them. Everybody is paying attention to them. Everybody's worried about what they're doing. And I mean, the irony is every teen is doing that. So they're really putting their, their energy, the spotlight is really on themselves, not on, you know, the person who's worried about it being on them. So I think it's really helpful for teens to understand that and to also have the perspective that not everybody's rooting against you. When you do something in a public space, in a classroom, or you have to give a presentation, I ask them to think, you know, when you sit there and watch somebody else, are you like rooting against them? Are you just actively saying, I hope you screw up? I hope you embarrass yourself. And they're like, no. And I'm like, so why do you think everybody else is taking that approach with you. And incredibly, that's a huge aha moment for them because they just really haven't thought about him. And that gives them a lot more confidence to kind of hold their space in school. And does the same thing work for teens who feel that their situation is unique? Like, no, you know, I think, again, part of being a teen is being incredibly self-involved and um, thinking that nobody else understands. I certainly didn't think anyone understood me except for Billy Joel um, when I was a teenager. But is that another piece where they could have that aha moment, like a way to help them see that actually you are a unique individual and like there are some common experiences that you're having right now? Absolutely. And I think that's, it's really, that's an important piece in building empathy in our kids where we're really explicitly walking them through how they're viewing other people and how they believe other people are viewing them. Super interesting. So another thing that I really appreciated in the book was how you wrote that you talked about the disconnect about what teenagers think their parents are really concerned about and that disconnect. But you also said that teenagers in your experience, are as distressed about their own emotional volatility as we, the adults in their lives, are. I thought that was a really important reframe and something I think many of us don't really consider. Yeah, their brain freaks them out too. So, And what's happening there is the thinking part of our brain, the part that's right behind our forehead, is the very last part of the brain to mature. And I think that's fairly common knowledge now in the general public that 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 part of the brain where judgment, attention, focus, concentration, all that stuff doesn't fully mature until late 20s, even early 30s. And so what's happening then in the adolescent brain is 
the emotional brain is fully mature. It's been fully mature since they were born. But when you have all the, the brain changes that are going on, puberty, all that kind of stuff, the, the emotional brain really revs up. And sometimes it just takes off without, you know, the, the thinking brain just does, gets shut down and can't put the brakes on it. So that's when they lash out at us. Um, they act impulsively. And they are as taken aback by that as we are sometimes. And and they'll even, I've heard students tell me, you know, I, I feel like I'm going crazy when that happens. So they really do feel out of control. And it does help them to understand kind of a temporary hiccup. This is why it's happening. And to have some strategies around when it does happen. I think parents need that strategy too, of how, how do you keep it from getting you know, too out of control? Yeah, I was going to pivot to talking about menopause, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spare all the listeners about the emotional volatility of that. Um, That's a whole other podcast. (laughs) I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about procrastination. So that is something that many listeners are certainly familiar with as it relates to their kids. You wrote about this study about when people procrastinate, who they actually think is doing the task when it happens. Can you share that? I thought it was really cool. So there's been research that looked at people's brains, the activity in the brain, when you ask them to do something, you know, just do something now. And so a certain part of our brain lights up when somebody asks you to do something right now. And then you say, um, okay, now think about yourself doing something later. And a whole different part of the brain lights up. And then if you ask them, okay, now think of somebody else doing something. The interesting and surprising thing is the part of the brain that lights up when you think about somebody else doing something is your part of the brain that says, I'll do it later. They're the same. They're the same. So, you know, the moral of that story is when we procrastinate, our brain interprets that as somebody else is going to do it. I found that study super interesting. I had never thought about it that way. And I could see that. And I also wanted to ask as a follow-up to procrastination, I have certainly heard stories from folks who have kids, particularly kids with ADHD, right? Who may struggle with time management. Two times I've heard stories from friends whose kids got to the end of the semester and had like 12 papers due in 24-hour period, and they somehow managed to pull it off. I'm just wondering, can procrastination in your experience ever be a useful strategy? You know, it can be. Um, So it's a difference in how our brains are interpreting the the need to do something. So as a parent, we look at a kid and we see something due we immediately get very aroused in our brains about, okay, this needs to happen. Our students, not their brain's not there yet. So it takes them longer to get to that point. And it's going to be closer to that due date before their brain cares and starts, you know, pumping out the chemicals to get them aroused enough to do it, to get that motivation piece. So we're not timing it very well between the adult brain and the kid brain. So that's one of the issues. The problem with students doing it is is they can oftentimes, again, kind of get by. But once they get in that rigor tipping point area, it, it can be much more challenging to leave all these things to the end. Now, they may pull it out 
Um, they will never have done it probably as well as they could have if they had given themselves more time. That's pretty standard thinking and procrastination. But what I what I want to stress with students is your future self. How do you feel in those moments when it all comes crashing down? And they'll tell me, and they're very, they remember, they're very explicit about <laughs> how mad they are at themselves and um, they're never going to do it again. So making a connection, have, helping your student make a connection, your child make that connection to their future self. Okay, so in, even if that future self is 11 o'clock tonight, so I'll oftentimes sit with students and say, okay, so what is what do you want 10 o'clock you to be doing tonight? And they'll say, well, I'd like to be in bed by then. I'm like, okay, what will you probably be doing? And they're like, I'll probably be on my phone. Okay, so how do we connect you with future self? So part of that is just being very explicit with them that what they do, what they decide to do in the moment has this consequence that they have to deal with. Their future self is not some superhero. It's just them more stressed out. And when they visualize that, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And that's just a habit. So that's a thinking habit that I try to kind of ease them into because I think that helps them then plan a little bit better. Well, I'm happy to hear that because I do use language similar to that. We'll be right back after this quick break. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. I wanted to ask, you talked about Sometimes our kids think we're more concerned about grades. Sometimes we might ask them questions because we're concerned or worried about an assignment. Are there other ways that we as parents and caregivers are contributing to their disintegration that we should be aware of? There are, and they're all (laughs) well-intentioned. So all the things that we do as parents that come from a place of love and concern, some of them that we do routinely and maybe too often are... um, having some unintended consequences in the long run for our kids. So praising, just like we've talked about, you know, if our kids have heard you're so smart for so long, that in the long run ends up, you know, feeding this fixed mindset. So that's one thing that we tend to do. So if we can kind of start to try, which is really hard, try to praise the process 
instead of the person, like you are, it's more about what are they doing that we can acknowledge. We are protecting, shielding, and sheltering our kids probably too much. We've been doing that for quite a while now. But what I think how it's translated into this kind of really young generation of kids, I think 18-year-olds seem a lot more like 15-year-olds used to be, and 15-year-olds seem a lot more like 13-year-olds, which has some positive things as far as like risk-taking and how close um, kids want to be to their families and they they value their psychological safety in a way that previous generations really haven't. But I also see sort of a negative outcome when these kids go off to college um, because they're not necessarily prepared to deal with the world that's not protecting, shielding, and sheltering them. Um, We help our kids when they not only don't ask us for help, but also when they don't really need our help. And when we do that too often, I think we're sending the message to them that you can't handle it. And then there becomes a little bit of a learned helplessness in our kids if that's been their experience. And another thing, I I think we try to take the stress off of our kids maybe more than we should. I think, again, very well-intentioned. We don't like to see our kids suffer. And they are under genuine stress. I mean, school is stressful. Adolescent life is stressful. All the things are stressful. So how I think of this is like sitting at the dinner table and saying something like, after dinner, would you mind emptying the dishwasher? And you get that response back of like, no, I no, I can't, no, I can't possibly empty the dishwasher. I have so much to do. I have homework. And in your head, you're thinking, okay, you run your phone for two hours before dinner. So, but they start to fray. They get that donkey on the edge kind of vibe going. And oftentimes just to avoid the conflict, we step in and say, okay, do your homework. I'll empty the dishwasher. And I I started thinking about that. It's like, hmm, you know, I have a lot going on in my days. And a lot of times things will get thrown at me and it's a stressor. And I don't get to, you know, be a donkey on the edge about it. I don't get to start to fray and say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do this. And again, I think if we do that for our kids too often, they go out into the world that's not going to afford them those opportunities to, you know, get out of it. So I think they need to practice that a lot more, that we need to let them work their way through stress, learn how to cope, you know, take the ups and downs of that. And that's going to build their resilience ultimately to stress. It's, I mean, I kind of consider it's almost being like inoculated against stress by having to go through that in a relatively low stakes way in the family. So I think that's one thing that we, we do well-intentioned that's not working out. And, and the final thing is, I think we tend to prioritize others sometimes in our family uh, before ourselves as parents and particularly our kids. And when when our tank is empty, we just don't have a lot to give, and something something has to give there. So it could be you know our job, our marriage, our physical or mental health. And I really want parents to think about how to be kind of selfish about taking care of themselves because that ultimately is great modeling for our kids that it's important. Self-care really is important. And when I do take care of myself, I'm a way better parent to you. I show up in a better version of myself. Yeah. You are speaking my language. My listeners know I am all about 
the self-care, I talk about being self-interested, not selfish. And uh, so I appreciate that. I like that. That's better. I was always calling myself selfish. Self-interested. I learned that from a therapist many, many years ago. Changed my life. I have one question just about the tips in the back, which there's 77 fantastic tips, which I have gone through and highlighted many of. But before that, I just wanted to ask a question related to COVID. Um, Because I'm assuming you wrote this book delivered this manuscript probably around the time COVID hit or or maybe you were working on revisions last summer or I just wonder you talked about the emotional age of kids and how they're you know they might be younger now and I, I feel like so many kids also feel and have lost valuable time and so just any comments on on the disintegrating student as it relates to what we've been through in the past year and a half. Yeah, interestingly, I wrote the book in 2017. So yeah, I, I initially self-published it. So it was, and, and then I did a few updates, but I didn't include COVID when I did the updates because at the time thinking this isn't going to be a long-term thing. Who knew? Um, so it's it's been re-released, but I, COVID is not directly addressed. But what COVID has, I think, illustrated is more and more of our students kind of fall into this disintegrating student category. And, and we can kind of see why, you know, the different pressures on our kids. Um, what I hope is that we have gotten to a place where we are prioritizing our kids' mental health and meeting them where they are. So I know there was a lot of concern over the summer about remediation and recovery. And every time I heard that, you know, my stomach turned a little bit because it was the last thing our kids needed was to worry about remediation and recovery. They needed a break. Our kids were experiencing burnout. And you don't, the only way you get through burnout is through a break. And so, you know, any kid who spent the summer really trying there, I really worry about the state they're coming back into school this year. And for any kids who and families who are really concerned about that remediation piece or the recovery piece, you know, I just feel like we need to take a deep breath on that. And, you know, it kind of is what it is. And we have to, if we push the rigor, you know, it's going to be at what cost? Do we want these kids to graduate from high school and burn out in college and drop out? Do we want them to have mental health issues? Do we want the suicide rate to keep going up? I don't think we want any of those things. And I think if we don't really, and I mean, walk the walk on this, prioritize their mental health and their mental well-being, then that's exactly the path we're going to walk down. And I, I just hope we don't. Again, yes. Amen to all of that. Before we say goodbye, I do want to just touch upon the last chunk of the book. And you say up front, like, if you need to go right to the back, go right to the back. But, I, you know, it can be really helpful to understand the why before we get to the what to do. But you have so many great tips. You've broken them down into categories like organization, time management, study habits, mindset, stress, sleep, and screens. And you say you can read these on your own if your child is motivated maybe pass the book along to them. And and I'm considering doing that in certain areas. And I will say I've already implemented a few strategies. I am one of those people, I read something, I'm like, all right, let's try this. Let's see how it works. I'm just wondering if you 
mean, they're 77. So, but do you have like one or two favorite strategies that might be especially relevant for listeners of this podcast who have kids that have learning disabilities or uh, specifically executive function challenges? So probably the the tip I use most office often and start with with students, particularly if they have uh, executive functioning weaknesses. But really, a lot of our you know tweens and teens don't have a time management system. So this I can't think of anything that's more simple than having a master calendar and a pocket schedule, and that just requires. Um, so this externalizes time for these kids, which they really need. They don't feel five minutes go by five minutes, 45 minutes. I don't know, but they, they, we need to put some things in their environment that help them learn. Their brains can actually learn to get better at understanding the passage of time. And for a student, it's really helpful to be able to plan. So a master calendar is just a monthly calendar where they put their big stuff on. And they're going to have white space on there, which is what they need to see so that they know, wow, I see a week with a whole bunch of stuff here. Um, and I need to figure out going backwards in time where I'm going to start doing this stuff. So this this helps with that question you asked earlier about the kid who waits till the very last minute and has 12 things due. If they can see it in kind of, you know, 2D like this, they can think, oh, okay. I can plan for this. And then what keeps them on track. So a lot of students will say, yeah, I've tried agendas and it lasted like two days because they forget about it. And it's, it goes in the backpack and it's never brought out again. And so I teach them to use a pocket schedule, which is a piece of paper. And on one side, you write today and you write anything you want to remember to do or accomplish in the day. And on the other side, you write later And that's the part that helps keep your master calendar up to date because as you're in class and things come up, you just run over and or you pull your piece of paper out of your pocket and you jot down very quickly the thing you need to remember. You don't have to pull out an agenda. You don't have to find your page. You don't have to pull out your phone. It's very, it's about as easy as it can get. It's very personalized. I've had, I've had some um, young men who their their way of doing it is like a little post-it note that's about two inches high but and they got the little tiny but you know what as long as it works for them it doesn't matter so i i love the the master calendar pocket schedule system to start it's like training wheels for time management for our kids Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to just show you listeners who can't see this but I'll take a picture. I actually made this for my kiddo. <gasps> Look at that. <laughs> So I have the to-dos and then new to-dos, but so far in theory, it's going well, but now it's about building the habit of actually checking in with it. There's a lot of scaffolding happening in our house right now, but I really just appreciated so many of the organization gifts, the time management. Yeah, those are huge struggles for a lot of our listeners, um, kids, so so many good strategies in there. Well, um, I want to just thank you, first of all, for what you do, uh, for sharing this work with us and for just sharing all of this information with my listeners today. And let me know or let listeners know where they can learn more about you and tap into your work on social media or elsewhere. Oh, well, I've really appreciated the conversation. Um, So I have a website, janinejanot.com. And that gives information about my coaching, the book, um, where to find me on social media. And yeah, I think that's probably the best. That's 
That's where I am, JanineGeneau.com. So listeners, you heard it here first. I will have links to that um, on the show notes page as well as Janine's book. I may share a photograph of the version of this uh, little time management uh, thing that I made. Thank you so much. And I'm excited to, to really dive more deeply into this as the school year goes on. So thank you so much for everything you shared today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into this episode, check out the show notes page. Every episode has a dedicated show notes page on my website where you can get links to all the resources we discussed, read a transcript, and even easily go back and listen to key takeaways by using the chapters feature on the podcast player. To get to the show notes page for this episode, just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this show. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform for this show, my wonderful new editor and producer, Andrea, and more. It's so easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. If you're into social media, you can follow Tilt Parenting at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter. Visit the Tilt Parenting page on Facebook or join my Facebook community called Tilt Together. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was... Steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking